think I'm just done. And like, I don't, I mean, like now anything else I write, I'm just like making up stuff to fill space. Like, I don't, it's like, it's like, all right, the spirit has spoke. And then now I'm just trying to add words to it because it's not enough, God. It's just not enough. And I'm like having to rebuke myself. So when I said it was a short service, I didn't get to actually decide whether it was going to be a short preaching time or a long preaching time. Really, the Holy Spirit did. And as we move closer to this day, I, I uh, um, you know, curious because uh, I'm not a big, like I said, topical preacher on preaching on Father's Day or preaching on Christmas or anything else. I don't, I'm not a big fan of topical, but I also know that we need, uh, the, the, there are some things that we need to know doctrinally, uh, theologically. There's some things we need to understand. And, and I also believe that truth, good, at least all truth, is worth repeating. I mean, it's good to hear truth over and over and over again whether it's something you heard before, but as I pressed into the, the gospel studies, because I'm really just like dissecting Mark right now and kind of looking through it, and it's weird now because I've looked over Mark actually a couple times. I've done a study on Mark before, and I've done a study on other things, but in, in the effort of not like trying to look back at things that I've already done, I'm like trying to look at it with fresh eyes and and really trying to see some underlying themes as we kind of move along, then rather than teach like in context, just but look, look at the basic theme that is happening like in the background, so to speak. And so I didn't really see a need to preach something different for Father's Day. And really, this is a continuation of the gospel of Mark uh, today, uh, because I believe that the gospel itself from the very beginning starts to present some challenges and set standards uh, that not only preaches to everyone, but specifically to men. And so um, this morning, that's this what I'm going to talk about. I'm going to talk about, you know, I'm going to talk about how these challenges affect us. And men, I'm going to be speaking to you this morning. Um, w- one of the things that I think we lose a little bit, especially in this generation, is we forget that Jesus was a man. <laughs> that sounds crazy, I know, but it's true. No matter how feminine this generation has tried to make him, the apostles were men. That doesn't mean that women weren't involved or didn't play giant roles in the gospel. That would be crazy to think that because they're all over it. Uh, but predominantly, the story is told from a male perspective. And so now being a male doesn't necessarily mean that you're a father, but built inside the image of you is the image of the father. And whether you like it or not, it is in you to be a father, to, to, to express the concerns of a father, to show the emotions of a father, to have the feelings of the father. The image of the father is upon you. And um, it's important because as much as this world needs a man, and it really does right now, this world also needs a father. And Jesus, while being the Son of God and having no biological children, the one thing he was able to do was father of movement to connect and restore all of God's children back to the Father. The apostles walked in the shoes of Christ, and they continued that movement, fathering the next generation towards eternal life. And this is kind of where we're going to pick up on things in Mark's gospel account. We're still in the first chapter, but I'm telling you, all of this is going to lead up what we're going to talk about today, and we'll start in Mark chapter 1, verse 16 through 20. If you've got your Bibles out, you can turn them on, turn the page, however you want to do that, that's fine by me. But if you'll get your Bibles out to Mark chapter 1, we're going to start in verse 16, and just read four verses right here. I preach with some passion this morning, just know that this is a subject I'm dear about. I'll explain why later. Verse 16, passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon 
and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in the boat, mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father, Zebedee, in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. Let's stop right there. Here's the thing is, we never know when it is going to come or, or if it ever will, but that moment when our life is going to change course. Nobody ever, you don't see it like, it's not like, hey, guess what? On Thursday at 6 o'clock, your life is going to change. Just know that. Now, I know like they tell you that when your favorite TV show is coming on, but that's not true. All right? I'm talking about real life change, radical life change. These men, they were, uh, I mean, the way we would put it, they were on the job site working. And then Jesus walks up and listen with very few words, but it is able to apparently say to them in a way that will cause these men to leave everything behind and follow. I mean, there is no sign of what or why they would just leave with a stranger, uh, maybe years on the ocean. Maybe a mundane daily routine finally got the best of them, and uh, in their heart, they were just ready. I mean, come on, have you ever just been at your job and go like, I wish something great would happen to my life? You ever been, you ever done like, I, is this what I'm going to do? I'm going to work like uh, eight to five every day of the week, and this is it. I remember waiting on ministry, like, wait, like God telling me to do some monumental things in my life. I left my job the most safe and secure job ever. I mean, if you can't tell, there's a little, uh, like I still can't believe I did it kind of thing because it's still there. Um, I left the best job I ever had and took a, just a giant leap into the workforce, uh, not the workforce, but into, the, uh, into not knowing what I was going to do. And a job came out of nowhere and supplanted me for about a year. All the market drops out. And a year later, I'm still going, God, I left the good thing for you, remember? And yeah, you sustained me. Now it's all imploded. And I did this all for you. What are you going to do? And then I remember going to uh, another guy calls me, and it's another job that will sustain me for three months. I'm like, okay. But I remember driving home every day, wanting so bad to just work in ministry, wanting so bad to just have, just, just be a pastor and working so hard for this. And and literally uh, coming home, listen to what's that song? Uh, this is your life. Are you who you want to be? Have you heard that song? Like, this is your life. Are you who you want to be? I don't know who sings it, but you know what I'm talking about. I'm listening to that song and I'm like, and I'm like crying. Are you who you want to be? Like, no, I'm totally not who I want to be. This is not who I want to be at all. I don't want to work like this anymore. I want to do stuff for you, God. That's all I want to do. Like my prayer, it's always been my prayer, was my prayer all during then as if it was like a groaning torture for me was, Lord, uh, let me gaze upon thy beauty and let me dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That, that's still the beckon of my heart. It's going to make me tear up talking about it. There is no thing that I want more than to gaze upon the Lord and to live in his house. Lord, I will be, I'll just be the gates. I'll be the, I'll be like the, I'll just, I'll check out the yard, God. I'll mow. I'll, I'll paint walls, God. Just let me dwell in your house. Let me work upon your house. Uh, if it feels at times, if I work as a pastor fervency and like I'm working and working and working and I never take a time, you know, there, there are times where I'll never take it. Why? It's because I love it. I waited forever to get here. I've had those days. I've had the daily routine where I go, I, this is not what I'm supposed to be. 
And then something happened in my life that changes it. I got a phone call. Come to Marble Falls, check this place out, right? They sucker punched me, put me in the La Quinta. If you've ever been in the La Quinta, it's not the La Quinta that's nice. It's the view. And I looked upon Marble Falls, and we had just told Justin we would pray about it because that's what you're supposed to do when you're holy, pray about it. And Joey goes, why did you tell him you're going to pray about it? You know you're going to say yes. <laughs> I was like, yeah, because, but if I said yes, he'd have thought, oh, man, I don't know, maybe this ain't right. <laughs> Got to pray about it, you know? But I knew it, right? And that's the thing. Maybe, maybe that's where these men were. I, I don't know. I just know that for me, I have experienced that in life, where the mundane, really? This is all, I mean, I had a dream once. Uh, let me express it like this. I had a dream once where in this dream, uh, I'm drowning. I'll tear up a little in this dream because it's still so real to me. But uh, in this dream, I'm drowning in this room that I can't get out of. And there's like a, like a porthole. It's like in a boat. And I can see out the porthole. And I, the, as the water keeps getting up, which for whatever reason, I'm not waking up. And uh, as it gets to where I realize I'm taking my last breath. And I know like the, the irony of the whole situation is I fully understand everything that's going to take place. I know that I'm going to hold my breath as long as I can. I know that once I take that breath in, I'm probably going to pass out and drown right there. And I'm going to die. And in that moment, all I can think of was this. Really? This is all? This was all my life. All of This is all I got to do? This is it for me? This is the best I got? This is the most impact I can make? This is the best I can set up the next generation? That's it? And the mundaneness of my life was hit me hard in that dream, right? And so if there's a time where you see me, I work with passion about something, wanting to do something, I might not have all the picture on how to get it done, but the passion and the love or the zeal to get it done, that I got. Why? Because, man, on the back of my heels, man, is always this thought that somehow that, that the mundane is going to be my life, that I've always wanted to live an adventure, but the one thing I've understood about adventure, that it starts once you step out into faith. There is no adventure until you step out and take chances, until you step out and take risk, until you risk it all. I'm going to tell you, if you want a great story in your life and you want the adventure of a lifetime, you want to be able to tell somebody. I've heard a lot of students over time goes, man, I want a love story like you have your wife. You know what it takes? Selling everything you got and moving to Washington State, even though it might not work. That's what I had to do to get my wife. But you know why I did it? Because I wanted to have that story. I wanted that. I want a love that looks giant. I want a life that looks giant. And it ain't going to happen fishing in the boat all day. It ain't going to happen that way. At least for me, it's not. For them, it apparently wasn't either. Don't get me wrong, they love fishing. We see them fishing all the time in the Gospels. They're fishing all the time. Jesus goes fishing with them, so he likes fishing too. But it's all over the place. But I think they were ready. And, and, and maybe they don't know what they're ready for, but they're ready for anything. Maybe they felt like nothing amazing is going to happen to them right up until the day that Christ comes. And they don't know what it is, but they know, man, they sure ain't going to know sitting in that boat. And that's the day that they're going to step out and everything changes. I'm going to leave. Uh, it's crazy stuff, right? They left everything and they followed Jesus right there. They left their job and they left their families. You can't take one from the other. We know that Peter had a family. He had a mother-in-law. Hey, why? I need you to understand that this is the time where I go walk with Jesus. Uh, you better be back by dark. We got stuff to do. Like, um, you're going to have to figure that out. I mean, think about the sacrifice here. Think about what God's asking these men to do. Now, some, some would wonder how they could ever leave their families. And, and 
I'm going to try to explain it the best way that I can. The same way our World War II generation left theirs to go fight a war. That's why they left their families. Because there are some things that we must do for the greater good. There are some things that if we don't do, there is no hope for my family. So I leave now for the greater good of them. They might not understand it like that. They might understand why I have to do what I have to do. But if I don't, there is no hope for it. I'll never learn about this eternal salvation. If I don't, I'll never bring it back. By the way, if he doesn't, there is no his mother-in-law getting healed, which is what's going to happen a few cha- or later down in the chapter. If there's ever going to be hope for our family and for all the families of the world, then we must go. The apostles left everything with reckless abandonment. They threw caution to the wind and became as Jesus, a man with no place to lay his head. What kind of man does that? What kind of of man leaves it all behind and just recklessly follows after God? And listen, I've researched this and I can only find a few. And I'm just going to talk about one, but, but I can only find a few that are like this. Uh, in, eight, in 1181, this is how far I had to go back to find at least somebody like this, a prosperous and wealthy silk merchant who had a son named P- uh, Pietro de Bernadon. This young man lived a normal, high-spirited life and was the typical wealthy young man. His dad was wealthy, so he was wealthy, and he lived this wealthy life. And as he gets older, he becomes a soldier. He even fights in a few small wars, in which in one place he was a prisoner of war for over a year. And it was as his time as a prisoner of war, when he's sitting in the quiet places of his life, when he's held captive and everything is horrible, that he begins to nurture a relationship with God. The year in captivity had changed him. He makes a trip to Rome after that, and he joined the poor in begging at a very large church there in Rome, and it was uh, there that he found his calling. <laughs> Let me hear it. He went from being a prisoner of war to not getting out and going back to the wealthy life. He was so affected by those who were also suffering with him that he went and joined the, those who were in poverty to see what that was like. What, what, what are they going through? What did they go through? I've seen it as a prisoner of war, but what do the poor go through? He's all of a sudden, it changed his heart. He had become sympathetic to those who have less. And so he finds himself begging at this church, and it's there he finds his calling. Pietro name was changed early on as a child. Most people don't know that that was his name. Who they know him as today is St. Francis of Assisi. He was born into wealth, but took a vow of poverty. In the efforts to win many to Christ. His preaching and ministry at first was not sanctioned by the Pope. They made him a priest because he was already winning many to the Lord. He didn't have to go through all the things that the priest went through. He was already having people meet together. And the poor were coming to him and listening to his teaching. He was poor too. He had nothing to offer them but words. Eventually, his preaching and ministry became so powerful, the Pope made him a saint once he died. Francis fathered a movement that fed the poor. His movement also took care of widows and orphans. And even he was seen nursing lepers. Unprecedented in his day, a wealthy man who had given everything up just so he could be with the poor. He recklessly abandoned everything. He left money, he left comfort, and all the easy living behind and revealed to us the heart of the Father. Man, he didn't do it for fame. He did it for this, he did this for family. 
Like Jesus and his disciples, this journey had bonded them all together. Man, when he's suffering as a prisoner, you know who his family was? Prisoners. When he suffered with the poor, you know who his family was? The poor. Those who had walked with them, those who went with them along the way, who they had lived with. Mark 3, 31 through 35 says, And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And the crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside, seeking you. And he answered, Who are my, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and my sister and my mother. And what we do binds us together in ways that some people just can't see and understand. I know uh, we have our uh, southern roots dipped in blood. And, you know, blood is stronger than anything. And your family is your family. But the truth of the matter is that even Jesus himself said, Who is my mother? My mother's sitting around me right now. My brothers are sitting around me right now. The journey creates the family. That's why your blood is so strong. That's why we say the whole blood thing about family. Because the journey is what creates family. That's why an adopted kid at a very young age can find him way into a family. And it's his family. Make no mistake about it. They'll fight and die for this family that they have no biological attachment to why because the journey is what makes the family (laughs) the road to salvation the one that leads to the heart of the father leads to the greatest family reunion of all but it isn't easy far from it actually however if you don't leave with jesus if you don't follow him and when he says come and follow me you miss out and for what another day at the job (laughs) another hour watching tv An artificial joy that comes from a glass. What about supernatural miracles? What about all the healings? What about walking on water and casting out demons? And setting people free. I mean, there are people just waiting for someone to come up to them and be Jesus. They're waiting for someone to come along the way and just say, let's go. Like Michael. I met that guy. I said, hey, I'm starting church. Oh, yeah, you're starting church. Yeah. And a little, and like when our hour ended, you know, I, he would be coming on while I'd be leaving. We'd talk for 15 minutes. And then the next day I'd see him as he was, you know, we'd cross each other again. He was a guy waiting for somebody to say, let's go. Waiting for somebody to, like, I'm looking for somebody who will help me in this area. He was waiting for it. And God, through opportune time and through, through uh, providence, through his own sovereignty, paired us together. There are people waiting for us, waiting for someone to say, let's go. They're waiting for someone to rescue them from their mundane life. A lot of uh, young girls think this is a husband. It's not true. It is Jesus. It is Jesus. What are we waiting for? For it to be easy? That ain't never going to happen. Ain't never going to happen. The bar has been set, defined by Christ, and the spirit-filled life lays just on the other side of the cross. That is the standard, whether you like it or not. That's the standard. And it won't be lowered for any man or any woman. Mark 8, 34 through 35, Jesus, and calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, if you're going to follow, if anybody's going to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his, save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's We'll save it. The only way to follow Christ is if you're going to pick up the cross. If you're not going to pick up the cross, you're not following Christ. And it's not a, this is nothing new. I'm not teaching anything new. This is hardly, uh, 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 it's, it's not a new thing. It's just a not hardly done thing. 
To the men who can father a movement of reckless abandonment will be, a, will be the men who find themselves who spent their lives for the sake of others. They will change the world. We're looking at the apostles. They do it. I mean, just look at them. We're all here today because they left everything behind and followed Jesus. They left all, like Paul. Look at Paul. Paul left all his degrees behind. Paul left all his friends behind. He left his reputation behind. He left everything he knew. Even when Barnabas is like, hey, hold up. We should hold up for John Mark. I can't. I can't. You take care of John Mark. I'll go on by myself. Paul, it's dangerous. Uh, he would go on to be shipwrecked, snake bit, all this stuff by himself. Like, you could, like I think most of us would have said, because God said you probably should have waited on Barnabas, Paul. That's because that's how we think. That's our Christianity. It's pretty shallow truth is in the matter man is i've yet to see a hard road that every christian life i read in the bible is a hard life that's why honestly that's why we have seats that are empty here because of the, the the reality of the gospel is that it isn't easy that it is hard and that most people want comfort in something that's easy that's just the truth but we would not be here today if it wasn't for the apostles realizing that this thing was bigger than them jesus said it was bigger than him. That's why he passed it down, right? You know something's big when it takes multiple generations to keep passing it down, right? You can't have a, that's a small vision that says in my lifetime, this is what I'll see. A big vision says, man, in the next three generations, this is what I'll see. That's a big vision. A big vision is one that not only do I have to, like, I'm going to bring eternal life to the entire world for all time. That being said, I have to create something for which I can pass down and it stays true and it stays faithful and it's going to carry time. For 2,000 years, we've been preaching the same word and for 2,000 years, this word still has survived. Power of the cross holds within it the ability to kill off all our selfish desires. It focuses us on what can really make our world better for the next generation. And what the world needs today are cross-burdened men. Cross-burdened men will make the needs of the next be the most of the utmost importance. They are going to father a movement that will set about global change. Don't believe me? It's all over the Bible. Look at Acts chapter 6. The apostles are already passing down to the next generation, Stephen and Philip. Right, already passing it down. And throughout history, men and women have done the same. Somebody has to live the unselfish life thinking of others so that there can always be hope for another generation. Somebody has to do it. I believe that it is what God has called us to be. And more importantly, men, that is what God has called you to do. All of you. From the minute Adam stepped into this world, God gave him all the responsibilities of taking care of it. It's time you find your part to play. Can I tell you, we wouldn't have to worry about half the liberal stuff that they go crazy about if we just took care of stuff. There wouldn't be a need for health care. There wouldn't be a need for government handout if the church actually did what it was supposed to do. If we as families decided what our ministry was supposed to be was to take care of widows and orphans and feed the poor. Because the church has enough money, it's just uh, caught up in other things. It has it. 
You wouldn't need to worry about global warming. You know why? Because we would see it as our responsibility passed down from Adam to go ahead and make sure our plastics go where the plastics go and that we did right by the trees and we want to make sure that this planet's going to be good for another generation. Why? Because it's our responsibility, our God-given responsibility. To pass it off to the government, that's a shame on us. No wonder they keep looking at us. Nobody wants to look to the church to lead anymore because we just don't. We just don't. I've been reading a book lately called The Bravehearted Gospel. I, I, I literally happened on it <laughs> by accident. I was like on Google doing some search for something, and, and this thing came up. So I started to read a little bit, look, seeing if it had what I was looking for in there. And as I looked, I was like, man, Joy, this book's good. I got to get it. But I'm, I was looking at this thing, and it's like this kindred-spirited book for me. And the funny thing, it came out in 2007, but it's so good. Listen to, listen to his words. It's the Braveheart of Gospel by Eric Ludy. Uh, listen to his words. He says this, Like many of you, I've grown up amidst of a sterile, weak North American church. We talk a good talk, but when it comes down to living it out in the real world, we're nearly impotent. We talk about love, joy, peace, Victory and blessed happiness, but few in our ranks actually exhibit these basic evidences of the Christian faith. And what's disconcerting is the fact that even fewer within the church show concern over this gross hypocrisy in our global presentation of Jesus Christ. As a group, we Christians are sort of mushy and lax. We, uh, there seems to be a serious shortage of the majestic, the intrepid, the daring, the just, the durable qualities the church once possessed. The steel of man is strangely lacking. He says, for instance, whatever happened to the idea of sacred honor, to unvarnished nobility, to unwavering allegiance to the king, whatever happened, love it, to the quake in my boots fear of God, to the lay it all on the line commitment to the cause of Christ, and the die if I must attitude toward defending the truth in scripture. Where did the radical abandon uh, to seek the save and lost disappeared to, or the once glorious idea of martyrdom? Or how about the burning need to stand against evil, to break the jaws of the wicked in order to ransom the oppressed, the orphan, the widow, and the enslaved? Where is the holy boldness, the courage, or the daring needed to birth the truth of Christ into this God-forsaking culture? What happened to the once noble idea of preaching with both authority and conviction? Where has the vanguard the mighty men, the fiercely loyal regiment of King Jesus vanished to because we need them and we need them now. Boy, I'd like it in the service right there. I mean, that's the drumbeat of war. Don't you think it's time? I mean, where have all the men gone? God will not enforce the draft. Let's just get that out. This will have to be your choice. As the world grows darker, you have a choice. You can watch it burn, or you can get in the action and lead the charge. But I'm going to tell you, before I hear another pastor criticize something on Facebook, before I hear another word out your mouth, what are you doing to make a difference? Before you gripe and complain about the political culture of our time, what are you doing to make the change? Before you're upset about what anybody else is doing, what are you doing one of the things that my mentors always reminded me of, one of the greatest truths I think I've ever known, is anytime I start to get agitated or irritated about anything I see other people doing, he first asked me, how many people did you save this week? Let's get you back on task. Your job is not to be the master complainer. Your job is to go seek the lost and save. That's your job. 
That's all we're all called to. I'm called to make change. I'm called to make a difference. I'm called to lead that change and lead that difference. How am I going to do that? I'm going to do it by going out there and doing the best I can out there. That's not for me to complain about. But I tell you what, I can't see any more people complaining that don't make a difference. That act like they don't know where it comes from. It comes from our slack. It comes from, we got to be able to call it where it comes from. we got to be able to punish what needs to be punished. You can't keep acting lazy, preaching all this self-help stuff and think we're going to make a difference. The soft preaching's got to go. I mean, uh, sorry if it feels like I'm dropping a hammer on Father's Day, but you know what? I thought you liked getting hammers on Father's Day. I thought that would be a good thing to buy you. This is a whole generation that's going to need spiritual fathers out there. Can I tell you, many of the students around this area, they need real fathers. I often wonder why God put someone like me in the middle of student ministry. I would always tell my mentor, dude, I am too old. When I first came to uh, the, the church over, over uh, First Assembly, I was an associate pastor. So my first role in ministry was associate ministry. I was not a student. I, didn't want, I had the choice, student ministry or associate ministry. I don't want student ministry. And God took me out of associate ministry put me in student ministry, and I was like, really? I don't know. I'm not good with teenagers. I'm mean. And you know what I found? God said, these kids need a dad. You're the right age. I stick them with some 25-year-old kid. They're just going to see another friend. I sent them you because some of these kids, and I started to realize some of these kids don't have dads. They ain't living with dad at all. They're living with grandma and grandpa. Some of them, their dads are dead because they drank themselves to death at, in the age of 30. Some of them don't have moms. So guess what my wife became? Kids are standing over our house all through Christmas. And then they leave and we never see them again. But we bought them Christmas presents while they're with us and try to show them what a family looked like. Because that's what God's called us to do. To father. You know, I still counsel students. And who are the students I counsel? The ones that need dads. And, and the irony is, you know, telling my wife, you know, when I counsel a student, she's like, what do you say? I don't. I listen. I don't say anything. I just listen. I listen about boyfriends. I listen about girlfriends. I listen about whatever. I just listen to them talk. And the irony is, instead of the moms now calling me for the counseling time, even though the moms and the other, you know, usually are there, so one parent's at least there, right? Um, it's the kids who will text me, are we going to talk this week? Are we going to hang out this week? And like, but I'm like, hey, so you like me now? You like me? You like me? Come on, shut up. I didn't say anybody like you. <laughs> okay. Okay. That this generation needs fathers and mothers. You think there's nothing to do? I walked over. Uh, you don't know this, but I spent some of your tithe money this week. You know what I bought? I bought games. Tons and tons of games and Legos. About $400 worth. And I sent it over there to the Boys and Girls Club because they're hurting for games and Legos. And, man, it was funny because as soon as I walk in, there's like 100 kids there on a Tuesday. 100-something kids. All right? And you know, you know and I know that's daycare. As soon as I walk in, we're walking into this stuff, and, man, we almost got mugged. New stuff. They come running over, man, like they ain't never seen nothing good in their life. They got a whole building worth of good stuff there. They've already played with that. But, I mean, like, that's, there are tons of opportunities here to father and mother kids. You don't have to even go looking for it. It will find you. You just have to be open for it. It will find you. Mentor somebody. Bring somebody in your wing. Pray with them. Teach them the Bible. Just one-on-one. You don't have to have a big... Just one-on-one. Start there. I'm telling you. It, 
there's a whole, the one thing, unfortunately, about my generation is they have left in there, in, in not being able to figure themselves out or just complain or want sin or whatever it is, they've left in their wake a bunch of troubled kids, a bunch of them. And I got a couple choices. Listen, I, I can go about my life if I want. You can go about it all uh, as if nothing's wrong, or you, you can try and father and money as many as, as that, that a mother as, as many as that'll let you. And that's the key, as many as that will let you. This is how we're going to affect the next generation. This is how we'll move a world closer to Jesus. But it's got to start. It's got to start somewhere, right? And it starts for, for men, it starts by being a good father. That's the way we're going to show them the father, is by being a father. Some of you, you already got your own kids. You have your opportunity to father right there in your house. But I'm going to tell you that you have a love. You've been created in the image of the father. Your love is bigger than just your family. You have within your heart the capacity to love more. That comes with more hurt, I know. But you're men. You were created for more. Quit being lazy about it. You were created for more. More than just your family. You love more than just that. Now is not the time to shrink back, but it's the time to speak out and to search out. The world is a dark world, but God sent you as the answer. Jesus declared that you are the light of the world, like a city on, top, on a hilltop that cannot be hidden. Man, it may seem novel, but uh, I have gotten you a gift today. It'll seem, not, I'm gonna, Eric, I'm going to have you pass these out. It'll seem novel, but we did get you a gift. Yeah, it's a common tool, but one that's actually rarely taken for granted since uh, half our day is governed by night. Uh, but it's a gift, is a reminder of your responsibility. It's a gift, a, a, a reminder of your calling, what you're supposed to be. You're supposed to be the light. I'm going to tell you the whole world looks to you. And you know what happens when you're not around? Uh, welcome to feminism. Welcome to the whole idea that women don't think they need men anymore. Well, yeah, because where you been? Where you been? They, and listen, women can totally do stuff without you. They've been doing it since the Genesis. When the man couldn't step up to say, hey, that's probably not a good idea about the apple, guess who stepped up? Who decided they were going to lead? Yeah. It's in women to lead. They totally can lead. They have no problem leading. But God didn't design it that way. That's why it's messed up when it works that way. Something's not right. It's off. We all know it is. Doesn't mean women aren't capable. That's not, nowhere in the Bible does that. But let's make no mistake about it. Men are supposed to be leading. When men aren't leading, things get corrupt. Things start to be perverted. I have prayed that every time you see this gift that or use it that you'll be reminded of God's call upon your life to follow Him with reckless abandon, with fierce passion, and with a lion's heart. Today you're being called to be a light, a city on a hill. For you, some of you a man, for some of you a father, who's been given the responsibility, dare I say, a Christian call to take care of the widows and the orphans and to help the homeless and the hopeless. And it's going to be dirty and it's going to be dangerous. It might mean sacrificing your life today for someone's life tomorrow. The apostles left everything and followed Jesus. They at times risked their life and their lives 
of their families to bring the good news of Jesus Christ to every inch of the globe. Do you believe there was once a time we had men who saw it their Christian duty to sell themselves into slavery so that the slaves could hear the good news of Jesus Christ? Go read books like Tortured for Christ. Where are those men? Underground churches right now. You know where they're at? They're in China. They're in North Korea right now. Hiding in basements under a single light bulb trying to read whatever page of the Bible they have. If they have a Bible at all. Some of them have only heard two or three scriptures, but they've memorized them and they share them all the time. And they pray that one day God will change their government. That one day they'll be able to go out into the open and be something. I mean, listen, I've met missionaries that aren't even allowed to have their name in a book published anywhere. Because if it gets back that they're associated to any Christian organization, their life will be in danger. I mean, I, I sat and hunted one time with a missionary from Turkey. But you can't tell nobody he's a missionary from Turkey. You know how he got in there? He took his wildlife biology degree from studying birds of prey. Awesome, by the way. If you're a guy, that's awesome. And birds of prey, and what he works with the Turkey government. I think that's right, Turkey. It's not Turkeyan, that'd be weird, right? Turkey. Turkish. Smart guy right there. My wife would have totally known that. Um, Turkish government, and he works with their parks and wildlife, basically, to get their birds of prey program back on track. While, and they bring college students into help who secretly smuggle in Bibles into the country. And every two or three times a year, he's doing things that will get him thrown into jail and never see his family again. His wife there lives with him too. She was one of the ones who smuggled Bibles in, a college student one year that snuggled Bibles in. Got to like her, came back to the States for a little while, married her, and they went back to Turkey. And there they're still doing ministry. He was a strange guy, but I remember thinking, oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh, that's terrifying. <laughs> that's so scary. Like, and then I think of Jason Morris, who's literally told stories about how when he was first there at Vietnam. And Jason's got, like, he's, like a, he's got 50 kids. And he's got a ton. I mean, like, they're strapped on him, like, everywhere. Y'all seen, I've got some pictures. Y'all seen them. They're strapped on the front. They're strapped on the back. He's got them in, stuffed in backpacks. They're all everywhere. Riding mopeds. Terrifying. But he talks about his first story when he got there about being followed by the Vietnamese government undercover and him actually talking to the guy. And they're constantly watching him. And I don't know about you, but I've seen enough Vietnam War movies to know probably not a wise idea to be a prisoner in Vietnam. I think they've given us a lot of ideas for how torture goes. I think, I think we learned a lot about torture from the Vietnamese. Just looking at history. These are men who sacrifice all. Somewhere along the line, they felt, I'm going to make a difference. And here's the thing is, most people never know who Jason Morris is. The other one in, in Turkey, nobody's going to know his name because they can't. He is an unknown soldier in this war. That's, that's changing lives that you and I will never see. But don't you know his name's revered in heaven? You know, uh, Michael reminded me of something awesome. He said, uh, he, he reads a lot of Leonard Ravenhill. I don't know where he gets that from. And, and uh, he, uh, he was reading it. He goes, yeah, Leonard Ravenhill said this. And I was like, oh, great. The fact that he's quoting Leonard Ravenhill back at me is awesome. And uh, he goes, yeah. He goes, I want to be, 
I want to be in, he goes, I want to be in the top five. And I go, in the top five? He goes, yeah, the top five most wanted men in hell. I said, well, the first three are Jesus, Peter, Paul. I think what you don't want it to say is, but who are you? Right? Ravenhill said, I want to be known both in heaven and in hell. I, men, I pray that for you. Now, with that will come some hard life. But man, oh man, could it be something great? We bring up the worship team. I'm going to close with this. We need men to father a movement. And one of the greatest uh, uh, things that I, I got to read too this week and just studying uh, the book of Job and looking back at how Job looks and, and uh, some of the things that's taking place in the book of Job, there, there is a neat conversation that takes place between God and the devil. And this conversation all of a sudden takes place, and then God brings up the name, Have You Considered My Servant Job? And I don't know if you've read that part before, but if, if that's you, are you going, please, God, you can just leave my name out of that deal, right? But you really start to look at that thing a little different. The devil is questioning how great God's glory is. In that moment, he's up there complaining to him about all his people. And basically what he's saying, look at all your people. All they do is let you down. You do all this stuff nice for them. You do all these things for them. And all they do is let you down. That's all they do. And you say all these things and look how glorious. Listen, your people be the first one to leave you as soon as it got hard. And God says, have you considered my servant Job? He says, I'm telling you, he'll be the same as all of them. And really, man, another way of looking at the book of Job is that Job is almost God's champion. <laughs> like he sticks Job in there and says, all right, devil, give him your worst. Oh, I'll give him my worst. I'm going to kill off his kids. I'm going to make him pour his dirt and burn everything he owns. Right? What does Job do? Is he going to curse God? Is he going to yell? Is he going to do anything? Uh-uh. Job like strips everything down and says, man, naked I came into this world, naked I leave. Blessed be the name of the Lord. What? You just bless God that your kids died and bless God that all this stuff burned out. He could not be moved. It would go on like his friends would be like, dude, you need to repent. Your life's horrible. And he was like, man, I'm staying. This is it. I can stay. Right? His wife said, curse God and die. Not going to do it. Not going to do it. Job, by the end of the story, has a meeting with God that, come on. It's one of the most amazing encounters with God probably recorded in the Bible. Did you know that Job is from the land of Uz? You know what Uz means? It's called the, it, it means the place of wood. And you know what Job actually means? It means despised. Who names their kid Job, by the way? I think the irony is, is that uh, it reminds me a lot of Jesus. Here's Jesus carrying the wood and the man who is despised also tested against the devil. Then you have this other man who lives in the place of the wood who's called despised and also is tested by the devil. Both are God's champions. Nobody asked for it. Nobody asked for those things to happen. When the hard stuff happens, because it will, guys, the darkness is going to be there. Just like the picture, the darkness is going to be there. You're going to have to walk out into the unknown. All right? Into the darkest of the dark, because that's, that's where the worst is. Right? But at some point, this is where we need men. We need men to step up and be brave. And I'm going to tell you right now, and let's just be honest, if you won't, the women will. You know, women do 80% of most of all the church work. Who's waiting on who for all your nobility? 
How many of you men served on Wednesdays? Mm, that hurt me. I feel the pierce in my own heart, guys. It's thinking back at me, too. Who should be serving who? Everything about nobility, honor. These are things we should be thinking about. The, the truth is truth. We can't stop that, even if it hurts me with me. Truth is truth. Guys, we got to step it up. I mean, this Father's Day, we have to be more than just a man. We have to be a father to our family, a father to our city, and a father to people we don't even know yet. But you know what the good news is? We bear the image of the Father. We have within us far more than we think. Within us is the ability to do greater things than Jesus did. He said it himself. I mean, we're going to do greater things than he did. Within us is the ability to lead a movement, lead a revolution, lead, a, lead an idea, and we can carry to the next generation something greater that they can stand on. It could change the world, but it's got to start somewhere. Amen? Stand to your feet. Let's worship the Lord.